Hello, this is John Deke with 25 Years of the Very Young Composers, which is a program of the New York Philharmonic. The music we're hearing now is by very young composer Elizabeth Egan, and it's called Wander Lost, performed by the New York Philharmonic. This is scene 15, Opportunities Gained and Missed. After the Philharmonic strike ended, and with things beginning to return to normal, Pierre Blaise was experimenting brilliantly with Philharmonic Hall, now named Avery Fisher Hall. The acoustics had been improved, funded by the Fisher family, but Pierre wanted to institute a new physical format whereby the orchestra would move out into the center of the hall and be surrounded by the audience. This was the beginning of the, quote, rug concerts, unquote, an astonishing innovation whereby the audience, instead of sitting in plush, deadening chairs, would be seated on the floor on rugs with pillows. The sudden clarity of the acoustics out in the middle of the hall were thrilling. We could accurately hear the other side of the orchestra. The lower sonorities were liberated and resonant, and there was an air about the sound which both orchestra members and audiences commented upon repeatedly. I myself felt so closely in contact with the audience that sometimes I would even lean back and exchange greetings with audience members, enjoying their opinions unheard of. The other Boulez innovation was the prospective encounters. Pierre had wanted to bring the orchestra out of the formal Lincoln Center atmosphere down into where, as I've said, the new musical thought was happening. He secured the Cooper Union Auditorium, an historic place near the East Village in downtown Manhattan, where Lincoln himself had made an important address just before the Civil War. It was not a perfect concert venue, as there were old-fashioned pillars obstructing the view from some of the seats, but the acoustics were quite good and the place well-situated, as I said. It was here that Pierre was truly in his element. He led the creation of the repertoire in such a way that even his propensity for serious post-Webern serial music was not exclusively dominant. In other words, he insisted on hearing in presenting a multitude of new idioms and styles of music which I enjoyed playing and hearing. He presented Charles Warrenin and Philip Glass, Milton Babbitt and Bill Balcom, Lucia Dlugachevsky and uh, me. <laughs> In 1974, Boulez had heard a performance of Jacob Druckmann's Valentine for solo contrabass, and in a chance elevator meeting, he suggested to me that I try learning that piece as he thought I might do it well. Well, I did my best. I worked like crazy on the piece, consulting many times with Jacob Druckmann himself, and Pierre programmed it on the next prospective encounter. Somehow the work spoke to me deeply, and though it was tonally quite abstract, I was excited to dig into the structure, the poetry, the sensuous implied story, and even the dance of it. Jacob was encouraging of my interpretation, and the performance turned out to be a lasting success. It got positive reviews in the Times, the New Yorker, and many other publications, and immediately CBS TV contracted to have me perform it on its Camera 3 series with Pierre doing the interview. In the next decade, I must have performed it hundreds of times all over the U.S. and abroad, 
in music festivals and concert series. My hero, Leonard Bernstein, also heard it and was lavish in his praise, perhaps overly so. Hey, but who am I to complain? I showed Pierre some of my scores, and he invited me to write a piece for next year's Prospective Encounters. By this time, my style was beginning a strange sort of change. I couldn't say why, but I was turning back to a more tonal language and somehow felt myself speaking in my music more to the public, to non-musicians, and to children. Although I didn't direct myself to any particular audience, I wasn't trying to be audience-pleasing, it just felt right. I was still influenced by the Surrealists, though in an absurd, sometimes comical way. The piece that came out called Dire Expectations was stylistically in line with the work I had been presenting at the kitchen with Jim Burton and others in a particular work I called The Terror at Magnolia Mansion. In fact, Jim helped me with the tech of the work, which was considerable. I had developed a style of writing that I called Sprechspiel, or speak playing. Perhaps a takeoff on Arnold Schoenberg's Sprechstimme, or speak singing. I had the instrument literally imitating the words of human speech. And remember my being influenced by Jimi Hendrix and possibly the trombone in Peanuts. <laughs> The results were inevitably comical, which was fine by me, and although not always completely understandable, like people trying to speak with their mouths covered, I could write whole conversations and have the translation, as it were, projected on a screen like silent movie subtitles. I had such fun with this technique, often writing lengthy program notes for the performers on the subtle art of imitating human speech in Sprechspiel. Dire Expectations used these techniques in part of the piece where the violin as heroine was paired with the hero, the contrabass, and struggling against the evil scientist, the trombone, percussion, and electronics. Both the violinist and bassist were equipped and trained with wah-wah pedals, which made their playing even more speech-like, almost to the point of understandability. And I might add here that at the first rehearsal, of this piece. It was the New York Philharmonic, after all, and Pierre was late. Jimmy Chambers, looking at his watch, said to me, John, get this rehearsal started. You have to get up there and conduct. Yikes! I'd never conducted my orchestra before, and there were chuckles and eye-rolling as I got up on the podium. I was so nervous, I couldn't even think straight. I apologized, but it didn't matter. Even before I'd gotten to about measure 29, I think, the concertmaster got up and whispered to me rather loudly, John, this measure is in 3-4, not 4-4. Four, four. My own piece! From that moment on, I got a clearly renewed respect for the conductor's art for sure. But at that moment, thankfully... Pierre appeared, and all continued quite well to my relief. At the performance, Dire Expectations was well received as hilarious and perhaps with a more serious underpinning. If one could imagine the ultimate serious artist and technician, Pierre Boulez, himself conducting this score with meticulous dedication, I was in heaven, and Pierre wound up clearly having a great time with it. The work was cheered by the audience, well-reviewed in the press, and I appeared to be on my way, as it were. 
but there were other currents pulling me out to a dark sea. I took a year's unpaid leave of absence from the Philharmonic for the 1976-77 season. It may or may not have been a good idea. I thought that I wanted to form a new music group with Jim Burton, Garrett List, Reese Chatham, and fellow Soho composers and performance artists. We did play some cool concerts and wrote some fine music, but the group never completely gelled. I also wanted to climb mountains in Canada and Alaska, but without the constant schedule of the Philharmonic to occupy my mind and keep me from thinking about personal issues, I began to fall into a depression. My parents, as I said, continued to escalate their battles, even in divorce, failing to adapt to any new relationships and continually pulling me into their fights. I began to feel alienated from my own family. And also in New York, Carol was pulling further and further into political and social activism. Alex was four years old now and needed us both. I loved him, but I needed to take a break. So I prepared to go off on an extended trip to Alaska, intending to traverse a mountain range that, as far as anyone knew, had never been climbed. My partner, Bob Rosen, was to go with me, but at the very last minute, with plane reservations already made and my gear assembled, he had to cancel due to family issues. What was I to do? I decided, irresponsibly, to go and do the trip alone. It turned out to be almost three months, during which I enjoyed hanging out with new friends in Juneau and even making an acquaintance with the then governor of Alaska, Jay Hammond. Jay was a hiker and an outdoorsman, hardly like the politicians to come. This was 1977, before the Alaska pipeline, when there were still vast roadless areas and virtually unexplored territories in the state. My object was to get myself across the wide Lynn Canal separating the mainland from the peninsula which had the Chilkat Range as its backbone. I often stood looking across the sound, the, the water, at that gleaming range. The Chilkats, a thrilling, totally snowy, glaciated range that had been ignored by climbers because its peaks were not as high as the nearby Fairweather Range or Glacier Bay National Park. Lynn Canal is not actually a canal at all, but a broad fjord running 90 miles in length across from Juneau north to almost Skagway. My aim was to traverse the entire Chilkat Range, or almost, and doubling back to the little fishing village of Excursion Inlet on the Pacific coast. Hiring a boat or any craft to get across those treacherous waters was prohibitively expensive. But one of my Juno friends knew a bush pilot who flew supplies to villages on his float plane and gave me his address. I went there, and sure enough, the next day he said he was picking up some mail and supplies in Skagway and would be happy to drop me off at a pond near the tip of the Chilkat Peninsula for just a few dollars. I couldn't believe it. So the next day, early, I showed up at the little airport, and off we went. I don't even remember his name, but for most of the ride, he was asking me when I wanted him to pick me up. I don't want you to pick me up. I'm going climbing in that range, and I have no idea when or where I'll be coming out. He almost refused to believe me. 
Funny, I don't remember how foolhardy I was being. I was just so excited by the glorious sight of those mountains. Well, we did a sharp turn, and he expertly landed his float plane in the pond with hardly any room to spare. I didn't see how he'd have enough of a water runway to actually take off. As I waded to shore, I waved to him. He waved back at me. Good luck, he called, his rolling his eyes and shaking his head. <laughs> he wheeled his craft around, gunned the engines, and easily cleared the trees on the other side. I stood there for a while in the deep quiet. My emotions were running wild. Fear, excitement, awe. I realized how huge the wilderness was that I had to travel and how small I felt. No one knew where I was nor how to reach me. This was long before cell phones. I realized how heavy my pack was. I looked at the typical west coast jungle of trees that I had to cross in order to get up to Snowline and onto the glacier. I took a deep breath and dove into the underbrush. Scrambling and thrashing my way through, I finally got up and out onto the snow. I put on my crampons, held my ice axe to the ready. I can do this! I remember shouting out loud, I can! And I did. I won't go into the details of the days of climbing and the nights sitting with my little stove and heating dinner. The climbs were wonderful, and I had to retreat several times because of daily storms that blew over, but basically the weather was good considering it was late April, early May in that territory. I had almost completed the traverse of the range and had only one more unclimbed peak to go. In the evening, the sun was setting quite late, I set up my tent, made my supper, and as usual, put my almost empty food bag out on the glacier away from the tent. My only protection from predators at night was two pounds of mothballs strung at either end of the tent, a precaution that an old-timer had told me to take, saying that bears and mountain lions hated the smell of naphthalene. But really, I thought, it's so early in the season anyway, there won't be any bears up this high. In the middle of the night, I thought I heard a sound. What was it? I turned over and fell back asleep. I was so tired. In the morning, I looked out of the tent. There were footprints in the snow circling the tent quite close. They were monstrous. I put both my boots in one of the clear prints. They fit easily inside it. The grizzly must have been some six to eight hundred pounds to have been that big and to leave that big a footprint. I was astonished. I was scared out of my mind. I gathered the food bag, which, though it had been ripped open, still had some food left. I hastily packed up the tent, kissed the bag of mothballs for saving me, and started up the last mountain. But I noticed the tracks of the bear. They were also leading toward that last mountain. Damn! No way! I had climbed six of the mountains and was glad to leave the seventh to the bear if he wanted it. So I retreated. Problem was, I was at least 30 miles from Excursion Inlet on the coast. If it were straight walking, I could have made it in a day or two, but I had to make my way along the glacier, avoiding crevasses as usual, and then plunge back westward until I reached the Pacific coast. But when I came to the head of the valley, which would supposedly lead me to the village, 
I threw my head back and groaned. I could see it stretching, twisted many miles to reach the coast and through all that Pacific coast jungle, only much worse than the brief one I'd gone through on the other side, miles to the south. I can't describe how thick it was. I tried chopping at it with my ice axe. I crawled. I stepped over and under. I wrestled. I purposely fell down to gain six feet of territory. It could take me an hour to travel 20 yards. Once I surprised a porcupine almost within reach. I was so hungry I could have eaten anything. I raised my axe, but he scampered away. I could have easily just sat down and given up. It seemed hopeless, like drowning in the ocean. I hardly even knew where I was. And what if this was not the valley that led to the village? I had no accurate map, but at least I was going downhill. So I continued humming to myself all the Beethoven and Bruckner symphonies that I knew in order to keep my spirits up, even if I was only making two to three hundred yards a day. I lost track of the days. My journal at the beginning of the trip was filled with intellectual and philosophical prose, but now had devolved into single-word sentences. Hungry. Lost. Found water. <laughs> I didn't bother to set up the tent even when it rained, but I had to go on. I just had to, day after day. There was fear, of course, plenty of it, but there was also a goal. If I could just reach that goal, the village, I would have completed this trip, something that no one had ever done before. Finally, after a week of this, the forest began to appear less dense. There were signs of tree stumps, and later on, gravestones. Gravestones? Not all that old, either. What the hey? A cemetery out here? I finally came to the village. The first human I saw was bending over a pipe with a blowtorch. Hearing me coming and pulling up the visor on the helmet, I saw that it was a woman. She stared at me open-mouthed. Where in hell do you come from? 